Dr. Neil Stacey, Senior Researcher at the Institute for the Development of Energy for African Sustainability, is on the line. The focus, of course, is how we can probably use innovation and technology and related 21st century methods to build a more sustainable energy supply. And I need not tell you the, what the price for petrol is, among other things that are energy reliant in this country. So, Dr. Neil Stacey, thank you so much for joining us. Welcome to SAFM. Thank you very much for having me, Fongaza. Plastic potentially superseding coal as an energy source? You want to unpack what that could potentially mean or is soon going to mean? Um, um, at this point, I think that the, the change that we're talking about is kind of inevitable. Uh, the, the prospects for it look exceedingly good. So, as you know, coal we've been using for several hundred years and there are a lot of mature processes. Uh, for its utilization, whether that's for producing electricity mm-hmm. or producing liquid fuels like fossil does or for things like smelting iron. So coal-related process is very well developed. But much more recently, uh, we've started to uh, accumulate large quantities of waste plastic, uh, which is itself also it's, it's a hydrocarbon, um, and it yields a considerable quantity of energy uh, through chemical reaction. And... We don't yet have mature processes uh, for using it in this way because it's comparatively new as a feedstock. Uh, so the work that we did was to examine uh, through fundamental thermodynamics the potential uh, that waste plastic will have through different process pathways to produce energy with particular focus on how effective it will be as a replacement for coal, uh, which, as you know, is a very carbon-intensive and otherwise quite dirty energy source. And what we've found is that waste plastic, by virtue of having a higher energy content per ton than coal, and also being somewhat less carbonaceous in its chemical composition, can replace coal, can yield more energy, and considerably reduce CO2 emissions. And processes utilizing plastic instead of coal also generally require less water input. So when compared you know, head-to-head with coal, it wins very, very easily. And the upside to all of that is that waste plastic is itself quite a harmful pollutant, and so there's quite an urgent need uh, for us to get rid of it. And it turns out that when you process it in these sort of high-temperature, complete thermochemical conversion processes, it converts pretty much entirely into the end products of combustion. So that's carbon dioxide and water. Uh, Whereas, you know, if you just burn plastic in like an incinerator or a furnace, it burns extremely dirty and yields uh, toxic waste products. But for these process pathways for replacing coal, it uh, is an exceedingly clean fuel source. Let's get this straight, I'm just struggling to follow. Are we talking about innovations that are now at, if you like, at a prototype or at experimental level? Or is this at an industrial level already being rolled out? And to the extent that it is the latter, to where can you point us and point as to some of the early successes, both for the environment perspective, sustainability especially? The short answer is that it is in different forms Mm -hmm. at both stages of development. So for processes that completely utilize plastic on a large scale, Mm -hmm. uh, 
very few of those exist. Uh, people are not really doing large-scale conversion of plastic. Yes. Uh, these processes are still quite new. The concepts are quite new. And so they haven't been optimized and refined or scaled up. What can be done in the very short term, though, is it's been found that replacing a coal feedstock uh, to many of these processes or replacing 5% of a coal, up to 5% of a coal feedstock directly with plastic doesn't affect the operation of the process otherwise. So if you look at you know, something like an iron smelter with a particular feed of coal going in, you can remove some of that coal and up to a 5% mix you can throw plastic in instead. And that's a drop-in change that can be done immediately. It's actually in the last four or five years that particular switch has become uh, quite common practice in Japan. Uh, it, it's yet to sort of um, emerge out here. Uh, but uh, there have been some processes looking also at waste tires, uh, which is a type of plastic, and one which uh, South Africa has a, a significant accumulation of. Mm, mm, so, mm. yeah, early stages, but implementable immediately. Let's talk about something that you actually made reference to, which was going to be my question, but for the question I actually asked immediately after that. Plastic in itself is choking up the environment, so perhaps we should have a, a very nuanced conversation as to when we are talking about plastic for the purposes of it replacing coal. What plastic, at what level are we talking about, one? And two, could a case be made I think the plastic that is in fact the environmental hazard that it is, in particular in the oceans, and the fact that it just simply doesn't decompose, certainly not in a lifetime. What can be done, first of all, to reimagine at a retail level our relationship with plastics before we can have a conversation about our relationship with plastic being an alternative energy source? Well... The, the types of plastic that are suitable for this process are the most common ones. Um, so polyethylene, polypropylene, and PET. Uh, most of the single-use plastics and the plastic packaging that we encounter on a daily basis are of these types. So most of that kind of plastic is suitable for this. The plastic that's really difficult to deal with is the kind of plastic that's a little bit less visible. So. Most consumer products or household products, household goods these days have some amount of plastic in them. The chair I'm sitting on mm, uh, mm. has several different types of plastic. Uh, the carpet underneath it is a type of plastic. A lot of the furniture is my laptop is half plastic. And those kinds of plastic are you know, really, really difficult to do anything with because they're bonded to other kinds of products. And they themselves are often quite strange plastics. So... The, the rather strange situation is that single-use type plastics uh, in the foreseeable future are going to be much easier for us to deal with than long-term use plastics. And so we have to ideally reduce our uh, use of single-use plastics, but we also have to start looking at other kinds of products and the ways the plastic is incorporated into them because those are the ones that are going to be the most difficult to deal with. From what you are saying, I do get the strong sense that I think we need to change one or two things. For instance, what is the obligation to the extent that this is going to be the very economically viable thing to do as it will be an environmentally 
obvious thing to do. What is the work then of, of policy, of government, of those public institutions and or entities, even departments, that now have to, at a policy level or at a related legal level, need to make the necessary adjustments? What are we looking at that is going to either be the most important, the most urgent, or even on the other spectrum be a challenge to changing the framework? Read into w what you will when I mean by what I mean when I say framework, that obviously sets the wheels in motion as you have discussed? So uh, from a policy standpoint, there are, I believe, two real long-term difficult issues. Uh, the first is we need regulation around what kinds of plastic are manufactured. So if, if you manufacture a plastic that contains um, elements like chlorine, uh, such as you get in PVC, it makes it extremely difficult to deal with that end of life. So we have to, at the manufacturing stage of making the plastic, already be thinking about what is going to happen to that plastic at the end of its lifespan. And that's where we need quite strong regulation. We need to ensure that the plastics that are manufactured will eventually be suitable for some kind of end-of-life processing. And the second one is that there's some revision needed on a set of international laws called the Basel Convention. Uh, those sets of laws mostly have been very successful. Their objective is to prevent the transport of hazardous wastes from developed countries to developing countries. And they were extended to include waste plastic. And they placed some very stringent uh, rules on what kinds of waste plastic can be transported from one country to another. And the trouble is that those rules were formulated specifically around the idea that waste plastic should only be exported for what is conventionally considered recycling. And in order for a waste plastic to be suitable for mechanical recycling, it has to be pure. So you can't have a mix of different plastics. You can't have polyethylene and polypropylene and mechanically recycle them together. You have to have them sort of cleanly separated from each other. That's quite expensive to do. The other thing is that the convention also forbids the presence of any contaminants with those plastics. Now, the most common contaminant you get with that kind of plastic is biomass, because you're talking mostly about plastics that are used as food packaging. So you get food residues with them when they're discarded. Now, for mechanical recycling, where you, you, know, you, you grind up the plastic, you melt it down, you make more of the same plastic, uh, those food residues are a huge problem. You have to clean them first. Now, for the thermochemical conversion, uh, recent research has actually shown that the presence of biomass improves the performance of the processes. So it's actually great if you have some biomass along with your waste plastic for those processes. But that kind of feedstock is forbidden. So what's needed is an amendment to the Basel Convention which allows the transfer of these plastics that are suitable for these processes from developed countries to developing countries. Because the best usage of waste plastic is to replace coal. Uh, the reason for that is it performs better than coal on almost all metrics. But if you're talking about a country that has a large mix of renewable energy already, um, or perhaps natural gas as their energy source, then replacing that energy with waste plastic increases CO2 emissions, uh, which perhaps in some ways it's worth it because you are eliminating the waste plastic, but 
from the standpoint of climate change, it makes the problem worse. Whereas if you put that plastic onto a boat and you bring it here, and here you use it instead of coal, then you're improving all of these things. Now, uh, the, the one quantity I just want to highlight quickly is that South Africa uses 200 million tons per year of coal, or, or somewhere along those lines. We only produce about 2 million tons of waste plastic. So we actually need those imports to come from other countries, and it's forbidden at the moment. I'm really now going to have to ask this question and get political if it must. Medupi and Kusile, billions of rands have been pumped into essentially coal-generated energy. I'm asking this question against everything that you have said in making out a case for plastics. What then becomes the position of the Institute for Development of Energy for African Sustainability, looking at South Africa's position in relation to investments in coal through these power utilities I've mentioned, Medupi and Kusil? Well, um, I would say that it is the uh, quite strong consensus amongst scientists and engineers that coal will be phased out. And what we're looking at, if we're looking at, you know, a gradual replacement with plastic is, is actually quite a healthy transition period where you're not needing to scrap everything and deploy solar panels to replace your entire energy requirement. Instead, you're starting off with that sort of uh, 5% replacement directly with plastic as a first step. Then you look at slightly more complex processes as you develop where you might gasify the plastic separately and then feed the gasification product to an existing process and in that way gradually phase out the other raw materials. So the presence of coal infrastructure uh, is in some ways an advantage for implementing these processes and going this route for the purposes of the transition phase uh, lets us do a transition gradually uh, rather than making sweeping drastic changes off the bat. In relation to the Paris Climate Agreement, I mean, I'm obviously having this conversation and I'm moving it slightly in relation to some of the global challenges that nations face, reducing carbon emissions, which this position clearly speaks to, or this migration or trend speaks to. To what extent does it contemplate what is contained in the Pirate Climate in, in the Paris Climate Agreement for the purposes of reducing essentially the rate at which global warming is taking place and how when we talk from energy sustainability perspective, which when one looks at it could be complementary of each other at the same time they could be sitting on opposite ends of the spectrum because energy sometimes might mean, depending on the nature of the resource used, be of a have a direct consequence on or against climate change. This one specifically, this move, I'm engaging it from that perspective of the Paris Climate Agreement. Does it largely speak to or are there inherent compromises in this discussion? I would say that initially, um, you know, with, with the sort of short to medium term climate goals, uh, the implementation of waste plastic instead of coal is very beneficial. Uh, it, it's a fairly significant reduction. Uh, in the CO2 emissions. However, um, it's not a complete elimination. Mm. So if you're looking at reaching net zero eventually, 
uh, using waste plastic uh, doesn't ever quite get you there. Um, unless the plastic is initially produced in a way that captures or sequesters an equivalent amount of CO2. And that, that is possible, but, I mean, that's uh, quite a complex kind of thing to implement. It's also a bunch of new processes, so we're not at that point yet. So the reason that I tend to think of this mainly as a transition is that waste plastic is, is not just an ongoing problem. It's not something where we say, okay, well, we have to eliminate the same amount that we're producing each year. Uh, what we actually have is a situation where we've thus far manufactured something like 8 billion tons of plastic. And most of that is either in landfills, um, which it turns out is not a permanent uh, or sort of uh, entirely clean solution to waste plastic. Uh, over the course of the lifespan of plastic, the likelihood that it will all remain in the landfill is actually probably quite low. Um, and aside from what's in landfills, the bulk of the remainder is actually still in use in one form or another. So we have this huge backlog of waste plastic that's already there. And in order to prevent ongoing intrusion of microparticles mm. from that plastic into the environment, we have to get rid of that backlog. We actually need a transitional process that allows us to eliminate more waste plastic than we're producing. And using waste plastic at a really high rate during that transitional phase, and then later throttling it back down to match production is a very sensible way of going about that. That lets us uh, you know, reach short-term climate goals and then also quite, you know, come quite close to the long-term climate goals as well. So essentially at this point we are looking at a question of building capacity to be able to do this at the rate at which, one, the environment can better sustain, and two, to meet the demand, and demand includes reserves, and more importantly, three, we need to build capacity so that we can attend to the environmental impact absent the necessary move at the pace at which it could potentially take place from coal to plastics. Of course, I say nothing about the economic development and potential thereof. That is pretty obvious. Yeah, I mean, that's basically, that sums it up quite neatly. Very well. Uh, the, the one omission, uh, the one thing that, that uh, perhaps changes the economic outlook and some of the prospects is that at this point, um, many developed countries uh, that have large quantities of waste plastic uh, currently pay other countries to take it off of their hands. We're talking about the Scandinavian yeah. countries in particular here when you talk about that, aren't you? Uh, well, Sweden has, um, for instance, has a shortage of waste plastic. It does a lot of incineration, uh, which produces heat, and they actually therefore buy plastic from their neighbors. Uh, but then you have countries like the U.S. and Canada uh, actually struggling to offload waste plastic and offering countries money in order to take it. And... Currently, we're in a situation where we could make very good use of it to the betterment of the environment, and they would pay us money to take it. But that arrangement is, at the moment, uh, prohibited. Of course, because it speaks to that very policy issue that you said it stands in the way at this stage, which would have to obviously be attended to. I'm going to ask you one final question now. 
we obviously are a nation that can do better with our energy outcomes. I mean, the IPPs in the coal space are better challenge. How then would we bring in more players? I mean, I'm corroborating, coupling up this question with the point that I made earlier in terms of capacity to meet the demands for the obvious reasons and benefits that I cited earlier on. But how do we ensure we get beyond just the mainstream? How do we ensure that we get persons outside the mainstream, those on the margins, or just simply offer incentives, not necessarily protectionist measures, but offer incentives to make this attractive because the environmental impact is obviously there to be attended to. The, the energy question itself and its sustainability is obvious, and of course the economic benefits associated with that. What would you say would be the entry point to ensuring that, if you like, we make the circle bigger? Well, um, I'd say the first thing um, that, that I'd like to see done um, is I mean, you may be aware um, our waste-picking industry, our collection of waste plastics, uh, is actually among the world's most efficient. Uh, we, we have a far better recycling rate than virtually all of the developed countries because uh, in South Africa, uh, basically if there is a financial incentive to do something, someone is doing it. And that means that we have people, businesses, collecting waste plastic quite efficiently. Now, to my mind... Um, aside from the value that's generated in those transactions by them getting the plastic and selling it, there's a set of positive externalities associated with it. So that person sells the plastic to someone who uses it as a raw material and they attach a certain value to it, but other people who are in no way involved in that transaction also benefit because of the environmental advantages. So I would like to see that industry subsidized by government. I believe that it should be. Very well. That's a good point, and I think I'm going to leave it there. Neil Stacey, thank you so much for your time. You've raised some very pertinent points, and I think there are many conversations within this conversation on, a, on their own on another day we could have. But for now, thank you so much for your insights. Thoroughly appreciate it. Thank you very it. much. Sure. Senior researcher at the Institute for Development of Energy of, or rather for African Sustainability, Dr. Neil Stacey, talking to us about the move to plastic from coal. The time is 21 hours. It's indeed time for news.